With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This summer, don't be left without air conditioning. Call Care Heating and Cooling and get on a care plan to protect your family. With a care plan, you get system maintenance and priority service in case of emergency, giving you peace of mind. Plus, a well-maintained air conditioner runs more efficiently and saves you money. At Care, their service technicians are paid to fix your AC, not sell you a new one. And their award-winning team is available seven days a week. Call Care today at 1-800-COOLING or book an appointment online at careheatingandcooling.com. When you need a company you can trust. Episode 227 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, and uh, thank you for joining us once again. We're going to get into it because this week's show is a little bit late. My apologies. There was some stuff on my end I had to take care of, but we're back with another installment. So first up is my weekly chat with my pal, Chris McShane. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the show. We are in the midst of actual spring training. There's games being played and uh, injury news to report. So, Chris, let's start with the with the worst news that we got so far this spring, and that's that David Wright has been shut down from throwing for a couple of weeks for a shoulder impingement. Now, I don't think you nor I were banking on Wright to be playing 130 games this season, but I think, especially you, the, the eternal optimist on the show, I think that we were hoping that he would be able to get through oh a week of games <laughs> before an injury popped up. Um, how serious do you think this is, and do you think that this will have any lasting impact on Wright's ability to play this season, or is this just a minor hiccup? So I think everyone will find it shocking that I am still not going to give up on his season or career until he does. Uh but I will say that when it came in, it, it was a little bit concerning when I had read that he hadn't thrown a baseball since June. Yeah. And that was – I was like, okay, that, that doesn't sound ideal. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's a balance where he looked good at the plate. He made some good contact. Uh, everything we've heard so far uh, – you know, this could change with the next update, but everything we've heard so far at this point – is that he can still DH, swing a bat, do all that. So, you know, we know with the neck that was uh, something that he had brought up that had been a problem, you know, just being comfortable in the batter's box, looking out at the pitcher, that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. Shoulder impingement is, is so vague. I was going to say that that's like uh, it's irreconcilable differences. It, yeah, it can be twisted I, to mean anything. Right. So, and, you know, we assume that it's related to just coming back from the neck surgery and the long period of inactivity that he had to go through. You know, I mean, he he looks better now than he did in, you know, maybe some of the first photos of, like, post-surgery David Wright. Um, just in terms of, like, he had gotten to a point where he looked like maybe he lost too much weight. Yeah. So, you know, he looks a little bit more like himself and he's been doing workouts and everything. You know, neither of us are expert enough on the surgery he had and its effects on the shoulder. Speak for yourself, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) So I will say that I am concerned about it. 
I will reserve judgment on just how concerned I am until uh, there's a another update. Or, you know, say say everything is pretty clear. He gets, you know, got checked out. Uh, say the diagnosis is just that, remains at shoulder impingement. Let it rest a little bit and then try to work it up again. Uh, you know, I'll... I'll freak out at that point. And and when I say that, I mean about like, you know, the season, his career, that kind of thing. Uh, you, you mentioned at the top, we, nobody, even me, uh, would expect him to go out and play a full season like a starting infielder would. And the Mets are in a spot where they have the ability to at least fill in for him, you know, not necessarily with somebody who's an ideal solution, but several guys who are good enough to to fill the spot. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not gonna bury him yet. I know that that's probably the popular take on him right now, but I will say that I am a little bit concerned. Uh, and I would be relieved to hear that he can throw without an any you know without a significant issue. Uh, hopefully in two or three weeks. Now, I, I definitely agree that it's too early to end his career, right? I also agree that impingement is a vague enough term that it could mean almost anything, and so. There's no point in getting worried over something that we don't fully understand yet. I'm on board with all of that. Uh, I'm also on board with the idea that it's nice to hear that batting is not the issue that we thought it was going to be for him or that it was last season for him. That, it, like you said, just basic batting um, is better. And that that's good for everybody involved. What's bad is that the Mets are a National League team and that... Wright's value almost entirely dries up if he's not playing the field in some capacity. Right. Well, I, I had said at some point last year, as an adamant opponent of the designated hitter, the one thing that would get me to completely change my mind and be a hypocrite would be if it meant David Wright could continue playing baseball for a few years. Yep. So, you know, I mentioned this to uh, a friend of mine, a uh, friend and, and co-worker, the morning, uh, you know, was it just yesterday morning? I, I mean, believe so, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, early in the week, <clears throat> you hear uh, Wright's been shut down from throwing. He's getting his shoulder checked out. The thought that crossed my mind was what Jeff Bagwell dealt with with throwing late in his career. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he, uh, with the state of his arm, I don't know whether or not hitting would have been possible to continue. At the point he decided to, you know, call it a career. Yeah. And he wasn't fortunate enough to be on the Astros when MLB decided that they're an American League team now. <laughs> right, yeah. Something that I still am not used to, still haven't adjusted. I, you know, might take like another five or ten years before I think of them that way. But that's the concern. And, you know, as a big Bagwell fan, that's something that I was pretty familiar with as it was going on and and all that. So I just hope it's not that. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this is still about as optimistic as you can get on a David Wright take right now. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the uh, it, it almost seems like it's too perfect of symmetry between Wright and Don Mattingly, who was sort of the, uh, you know, the Yankees savior after a long period of of uh, you know being terrible, and ha on a Hall of Fame trajectory that was cut short by injuries, and uh, I'm trying to not think about that. <laughs> I'm trying to remain hopeful for right here, but it just seems to me like once the spinal stenosis diagnosis came down, he was he was playing on borrowed time, and if. You know, if all of these other things keep popping up, it, I, I just can't see his body going for too much longer. I hope I'm wrong. God damn it, I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not super optimistic about it at this point. But I'm, I'm trying to, my hope is that he can play enough of the field 
that he could be a bench piece for the Mets this year. That's about as high as my optimism gets right now. Okay. Okay. Uh, the one thing that I will say that you know comes to mind. Well, the the larger thought on David Wright, regardless of what happens from here on out, you're absolutely right that he was on a Hall of Fame track, basically. You know, I mean, you, you look at what he's done. Uh, I forget which columnist it was that sometime last year, after he gotten hurt, was like, "Oh, wow! I just realized that David Wright ranks." I don't know, fifth or sixth or seventh, something all time among third basemen. And it was like OPS plus, you know, or, yeah. or so it, a reasonably good metric to use to compare guys from different eras. Uh, and it was like this awakening that, that David Wright was a great player. <laughs> so regardless of what happens from now until whenever, uh, <clears throat> he is the greatest position player in team history. Absolutely. And it's, that's not an insult to Carlos Beltran and Mike Piazza or anyone from the 86 team in that era or anyone from earlier in the franchise. It's just, you know, you think of all these, like, the absolute best offensive players. And Wright is still up there in terms of what that, you know, peak production looked like. But, uh, you know, the absolute best guys, a lot of them, whether it was Keith or Gary Carter or, or Piazza and Beltran, weren't on the Mets as long, you know? So it's right. you know, the, the length and the level of excellence. So I'll just get that out of the way. I'll, I'll talk about that forever. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he also, you know, in so many ways, he was the representative for all of us of, of a, a Mets fan turned Mets player. You know, growing up as a Mets fan, that, that endears himself to a, to a city even if it functionally means nothing. Right. Well, and you see the opposite of it with Harvey, that he has to deal with bullshit that, you know, that he grew up a Yankees fan. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which that, matters even less somehow. Right. And and I, that plays into the whole, oh, future, he's a future Yankee thing, which is like the most annoying thing in sports because, <laughs> yes, they do end up signing lots of guys on major free agent deals, but that landscape has changed. Uh, you know they're they're not alone at least in that right, regard. Right. Um, but getting back to right, my other thought in terms of the stenosis, I'm kind of curious. You know, is there any silver lining with that part of what he's dealing with, in the fact that he missed so much time last year with a neck injury? Like what you know, what matters most? Is it age? Is it you know? Is it the regiment he he's going through? Is it wear and tear just from playing games? You know, I don't I don't know what makes that accelerate or decelerate, or if any of it has any effect at all. You know, is it is it time is the biggest thing, or continuing to play uh, is is a bigger thing? So I don't know the answer to that. I'm just looking for a way to to kind of think that if he's able to get back to throwing regularly uh that he might still be able to do more than i think uh even what you expect which i think is probably aside from me about as optimistic, as optimistic as people get, get yeah. right now i mean the big thing for me is and i know this again means nothing but for sentimental reasons i want to see him number one on the mets hall um home run list yeah and he's uh, within, he's within 15 or something it's pretty close yeah, and last year that wasn't a problem. You know, the average wasn't there, but he got on base and he hit home runs. Um, right. You know, so that that aspect of of his ability was still there despite the things he was trying to deal with. And right. you know, uh, we on Twitter the other day, a couple other, I think it was DJ Short and and somebody else, a couple other Mets fans, talk reminiscing about his home run in the World Series. You know, yeah. being there for that was like an all-time great moment as a Mets fan, you know, like I just got to see David Wright hit a home run in the world series. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, I, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I'm trying to remain optimistic here. I think the, the thing that hurt the most is I, how can I put this? Um, 
I think sometimes it can become very, very easy to to be jaded about these things and to say like David Wright has made more money than my entire line has ever made or ever will make, right? Like David Wright's this contract alone is worth more than my entire life times ten, right? And you know, he has all the money in the world and you know, he's gotten to play a sport that I wasn't good enough to play in high school, you know, and, until he's in his mid thirties and you know, all that. It can be very easy to to, to to get down that. But then I just recently caught an interview with him. Uh, it was actually one night of an interview. It was um on uh the Mets Hot Stove show. They they do uh they did this in the pregame too. We did the Hello Jerry segment with Jerry Blevins. Right, yeah. And Wright was the guest on it. And just watching him just goof off and have fun, it reminded me of what of that he's he's an actual person, you know, and and it's just I can't imagine how bummed he is right now. I can't imagine how hard this is for him. And not again, I'm I'm not feeling sorry for him because because he can't play the game anymore. It's just it's a it's a sad situation, that's all. And uh, as much as it affects me as a baseball fan, it I think it affects me as much or more as just a person watching a really, really talented person not be able to do the thing that they're great at. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm with you. All right, well, the the the, uh, the slightly better news we got injury-wise this week is that Lucas Duda has been cleared to swing a bat again after being shut down temporarily with back spasms and some hip pain. But Duda appears to be um, past that now. Now, he has not seen Grapefruit League action yet, but hopefully he will soon. Um, how concerned were you about Duda's injury situation? Uh, hmm. Where would I put it on the scale? I guess the what concerns me more than early spring uh, back spasms, and, and one thing, too, with all of this is sort of just a general reminder that because of the World Baseball Classic, spring training is longer. Yeah, it's super early. So we're, you know, I mean, if it started later, we might have run into the exact same things. But with, you know, if it weren't officially underway this early – Something like Duda got a cortisone shot and, you know, shut it down for three days or whatever it was. Might have just not gone reported just because there's not, you know, as much official stuff right. happening. So I don't know, you know, what that recovery process has looked like for him over the course of the winter. Uh, the Mets, because of the way arbitration works, they're not really on the hook if things go terribly wrong and they decide to cut him. Uh, during spring training, I forget the cutoff date. I'd have to look it up, but you know they didn't take on a huge risk by tendering him a contract, even if they have a high level of concern with the state of his back. Uh, but I guess what concerned me a little bit more was just that when he did come back, and I think you know part of this might have just been that there you know there weren't minor league games to play in anymore at that point, but they clearly weren't you know super comfortable having him just come back and start. Yeah, uh, you know, part of that was James Loney, much to uh, the Green Man's chagrin. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm willing to let that work itself out as well. Uh, you know, ideally, you'd like to see him come in and have already hit whatever Conforto has hit at this point in spring training. Right. Right. And you know, we're not even talking about that, and we just say he's a guy who was injured last year but he's he's looking good for this year um i guess it's not so much an individual concern more so a combined okay you know if Wright's throwing delays him even if it's a significant amount of time and he comes back and if dude is back is you know a similar thing i don't love the corner infield <laughs> You know, we know Wilmer Flores can rake against lefties, and he's an easy guy to root for and, you know, super nice kid, all that. But, you know, it, it starts to not look ideal when you're trying to shoehorn Jay Bruce in at first base or, 
you know, whatever the options are. Uh, I'm much more comfortable with the middle infield depth. I was going to say, corner infield depth is like the, the least deep part of the team. Yeah, yeah, because the outfield, you could you could patch it together. You know, it, it, I'm not a... Uh, I hate to even utter the phrase, but say Cespedes is on the DL. And it's a short, you know, it's been shortened a bit. So say he just goes on 10 days for a thing. Nothing crazy. You can get by with the other outfielders they have, especially with Conforto. Absolutely. Wherever he is, you, you can you can patch that together. Um, middle infield, I think, is a lot more comfortable because of Rosario and, you know, the, the knowledge that Rivera, Reyes, Chikini, you know, all these guys can kind of slide in at second. Cabrera can play the shorter second. That's all a lot easier to put together. But, you know, I whatever your take on Dom Smith is, I don't think anyone – I don't, I don't even think Keith Law would say, oh, yeah, Dom Smith could take over for Lucas Duda tomorrow and produce at a level that's going to be good enough for a major league team trying to contend for the division and more. Have you been taking a break from Mets Twitter? <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of people who would say that. They're crazy. I, well, no, yeah, no, no, no. Well, Met, yes. Uh, my favorite moment of, of – uh, recent Mets Twitter, and I want to get her name right uh, just because just making sure I, I haven't memorized uh, correctly here. New beat reporter from the Mets for NJ.com. I think it, it's Abby. Uh, you're listening to me scroll my <laughs> tweets here. Mestraco. There we go. All right. So she had tweeted something uh, earlier today about David Wright getting his second opinion. Why is that a big deal? Why is everybody freaking out? And it, it was a moment of like, oh, welcome to Mets Twitter. And yeah. a few people replied with, uh, you know, fairly good explanations of just how things go and, and how people react to news, you know, whether it's good or bad. Um so yeah, that that's uh, but but that that segment of things I think is at least separate. I'm well aware of the Duda haters. <laughs> um, I, you know, my big concern with Duda is just I think that there's a um, you know, I think that there's a scenario that isn't that hard to envision where right and Duda are not ready for the start of the season, and the depth that we talk about and we laud all the time is going to prove to be emptier than we thought. And that's that's a little bit scary to me, because I think that this team is reasonably deep, especially compared to last year. You know, there's Nary and Eric Campbell to be found. Right. You know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm comfortable with the mix of guys having to have two of them out there and I mean, I know Reyes is plan A or B, sorry, at third base, but w with Wright injured, that Reyes is basically the starting third baseman. Uh huh. But there's not, like, there's one position in the minors that, you know, there's not somebody who's either starting the year in AAA or who played there last year who you would say, oh, yeah, that guy might be ready to get his chance to play third base. You weren't a believer in Philip Evans' one season of uh, of raking in Double A. <laughs> well, I'm not, I don't want to entirely write that off, but yeah, that you know, you, you got to at least see him repeat that, and it's just sort of a, you know, you go down the organization. I know um, uh, who's the kid that I'm trying to think of, David something. Right. <laughs> No, another David. Uh, third base. They drafted him out of college. Hold on. I'll, I'll find his name, too. It's, aside from the college part, it's sounding a lot like David Wright to me, but you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll let that go. Um, you know, but it, Dom Smith wouldn't be ready to, to step in on opening day. And, you know, Pete Alonzo, last year, you know, he, he was just drafted last year, spent his professional part of the season in Brooklyn, you know, that's a guy who, even if he moves quickly, isn't 
someone who you're going to be looking at calling up super early. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's Thompson, David Thompson. That's who I'm thinking of. Okay. And just in terms of guys who are third baseman. Uh, yeah. I think you're going to hear a lot about Gavin Cicchini, third baseman sometime soon. Yeah. We'll see how the throwing goes from there. Yep. You know, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't doubt his bat nearly as much as just trying to correct whatever the throwing issues were that plagued him throughout his minor league career. Yeah. But I doubt both, but I, I'm not big on Jakini. All right. Fair enough. But that's okay. You know, I, I'm again, I'm happy to be wrong about this. Yeah. But I'm glad to hear the dude is swinging the bat again, and I hope to see him hit some, uh, some big dong soon. Uh, yeah. Yes. And the last sort of bit of injury news we have here is that Zach Wheeler threw his first bullpen and is scheduled to next week make his Grapefruit League debut. Um, especially after our first injury report of the of the preseason was the was that Wheeler was having some discomfort. This is a really nice bit of uh, news to be hearing. Yeah, you filed this one under believe it when I see it, but. <laughs> There's a date, you know, there's there's something to look at and look forward to with Wheeler. And, you know, the, the Mets, uh, as we record this, are preparing to roll out what really appears to be the opening day rotation, just starting at five with Gazelman and then going, you know, down the line how you would expect them to, Syndergaard, DeGrom, Harvey, Matz. So that's, that's exciting. And Wheeler actually pitching against... You know, I know he threw the one inning in the minors last year, but actually getting in and seeing at least some major league hitters in a spring training game, uh, that's that's encouraging. And, you know, March 10th will be here before we know it. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have an answer on that. Yeah, I agree. Um, um, are you... Um... Are you confident enough in Wheeler's stuff that if he is healthy and Gazelman's healthy you would put you would be more inclined to give uh Wheeler this the fifth spot or Gazelman I think man I think I give it to Gazelman either way I think I do too uh you know when I say either way in the sense let's just assume there's no restrictions on anyone and we just want to say nobody gets hurt there's no setbacks. Who's going to be the better starting pitcher over the course of a season? I'd probably give Gazelman the, the shot at it first, at least. Uh, throw in the logistics of an innings limit that is somewhere in the low 100s for Wheeler, which I, I don't think is unreasonable that they want to try to keep it to that. That, that kind of seems like being responsible with him. Uh, but you throw that in there, too. And there's just no way, you know, what do you do? You either burn him out early in the season because you're going to use up a lot of the innings or, uh, you know, you, you kind of transition him into the bullpen for a little while and then work back toward that, um, you know, have him start when you take six-man turns through the rotation, which we know they're going to do. Oh, yeah. You know, that, and that's fine, but... Yeah, I'm uh I'm with the folks who are high on Gazelman. And I like Wheeler, so it's not an insult to him. It just sort of seems like reality right now. Yeah. I agree with that. All right, our last bit for this segment is an email we received. As always, you can email the show at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Uh this is from a Michael whose last name is not Conforto, despite what we suggested last time. He um he got to the bottom of his own question, which is about uh, service time, and uh, he uh, he says that as long as Conforto spends fifty five or more days in the minors, the Mets will gain an extra year of control. Um, let's hope that doesn't happen. Not because I, don't, I want to give up Conforto, but because I hope that he continues to hit the way he's hitting in the uh, in spring training and gets to uh, the big leagues faster. But yeah. anyway, uh, do you uh, do you concur with that take? 
Uh, I do. I mean, I think we've touched on it a little bit over the last few weeks. The silver lining, if he, uh, if Jay Bruce is amazing, Lucas dude is healthy, the rest of the outfield is healthy, and there's really no spot, and they happen to get that good production and an extra year at Conforto, then that's not that that's really the best outcome for the balance of immediate success and long-term right. success. But I can say that I right now do not care about like the 2022 season. Yeah, same here. I want the Mets to be good forever. Right now, I don't I don't care about that season. So, you know, if Bruce puts up a repeat of what he was doing uh right after he got traded to the Mets, I hope there's a short leash to you know, make a change in terms of who the starter is. Agreed. All right, so on to uh, the next part of his email here. He says, uh, on another subject almost exactly a year ago, I wrote in asking about T.J. Rivera's prospect rank and whether you guys thought he would make the majors for at least a cup of coffee. Jeff said he wasn't in his top 50 and wouldn't play in the majors, but he never thought Danny Muno would play the majors, so who knows. As a guy who grew up and has lived most of his life in the Bronx, I can't help but root for the guy. So, I'd like to update my question. Do you think T.J. Rivera will make the Hall of Fame on the first <laughs> ballot, or will he have to wait a few elections? And you thought my dream scenario was unrealistic. Seriously, how would you rate him as a player today? Do you think he will spend significant time in the majors going forward in his career? As I see it, barring injury, the Mets' five-man bench to start the season will be Rene Rivera, Flores, Reyes, Ligaris, and one more, most likely an outfielder, perhaps Brandon Nimmo. I think T.J. is the first infielder to be called up if there's a need. What do you guys think? Uh, go ahead, Chris. No, yeah. So I, I, I think, hmm, I think he hit for such a high average that the expectation is probably a little too high on him in general. And I don't necessarily think that Michael, uh, not Conforto, is thinking this way. <laughs> but you know, sort of generally, I think it's easy to buy into that kind of success that a guy has late in the season. Uh, you might accuse all of us of doing the same thing with Gazelman, and maybe that's fair. But I think Rivera might be able to hang as a major league player, just you know, not hit exactly the way he did last year. And you know that that's a really good outcome for his career. Um, you know, considering where he came from in terms of, uh, you know, being undrafted, getting developed by the Mets, coming up through the system, and pretty much hitting where, everywhere along the way, you know? So, yeah, I, I'm, I'll i buy that he can be a major league piece. I am not expecting well above average hitter uh, who you would consider, you know, maybe handing a starting role to. I'd be happy to be wrong. Uh, echoing uh, some of your statements earlier on the episode. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a Bronx guy uh, coming up on 15 years living in the Bronx. And, you know, I, I definitely feel that connection to Rivera as well here. Um, so, yeah, I, I will say that I think he is fully capable of being a useful major league piece. And I would be surprised if it turns out to be more than that. Yeah, I, I think that Rivera is the type of guy that is both oftentimes overlooked by prospect guys and overrated by non-prospect guys. What I mean by that is this. Rivera never had the tools to make somebody who really knows what they're looking for with an amateur player drool, right? He wasn't going to put up gaudy offensive numbers. He's not a pitcher with an amazing breaking ball. He's He looks like a pretty solid player, but that's not the sexiest thing to see if you're a, a prospect evaluator, a talent evaluator. You're used to seeing guys who you can dream on, who have a body or one tool or something that excites them to where they, where they can dream on what they're not yet seeing. I don't think Rivera ever looked like that. I think Rivera always looked like an above-average hitter wherever he was playing. I mean, after you know being developed by the Mets, I'm not talking about him being an undrafted free agent and all that. But you know, he's just he's um, 
he's an he's a bit of a to me this is a funny phrase to use for somebody who doesn't who's only been in one organization so I'll amend it he's a journeyman in training right he's the type of guy who I could see having a, a relatively long career being the last guy on a bench for four or five teams because he if he can play a little bit of defense and he can hit a little bit and he doesn't have the highest upside in the world, you know, that's, that's still a useful player. And I think that sometimes we can get caught up in seeing those type of players get on a hot streak and think, oh, if the Mets only were playing him every day or if the Mets were only giving him the chance to prove this, he would fizzle out relatively quickly. I'm not saying that's, a, that's the case with Rivera exactly, but we've seen that story enough times. I mean, right. you know, there was like a solid week in 2004, 2005, when I was convinced that if Chris Woodward was playing every day, all <laughs> yep. the Mets' problems would be solved. You know, like these these are the things that happen, right? So I think that he, you know, he didn't make a guy like Jeff's top fifty, partially because he's not the traditional exciting prospect, and he probably is more talked about this offseason than he should be by guys like me who aren't prospect evaluators, talent evaluators, because we saw him produce in the major leagues. And, and we're, we're constantly told that the only real thing that matters is major league success. So to answer your question in a very, very long-winded way, I, I think he'll stick around. I think he'll probably be a guy who, who rides that shuttle to Vegas, to and from Vegas a number of times this year. I don't think you're going to see him ever repeat the batting average he had this year. Right. I I mean, just a a, a point on that. He, you know, he had a 360 batting average on balls in play. Yeah, exactly. That other things could develop and get better, but that is almost guaranteed to come down. And it was, you know, he, he was, he did well in that regard in his, you know, minor league career, but that's a very different thing at the major league level. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I think he'll stick around a little bit. I, I think he's a great story. And, you know, I, I hope that I hope that at this time next year, when we're looking at the Mets bench construction, I, I hope that if Reyes isn't back, a guy like Rivera could be a viable option. I don't know if he's there just yet, but... Yeah. And, and one other thought on just looking back at sort of the you know, prospect evaluation, whether, you know, whether it be uh, from Jeff or anyone else, you know, Rivera, there are a lot of guys who can hit similarly uh, at the levels that he was at, you know, it's not everybody. And, you know, I know in the Pacific coast league, he ranked well, I think, did he, did he win the batting title? If not, he was either like first or second. He was very close. Yeah. Well, yeah. Second or third is what what I meant to say just there, but (laughs) If he didn't win, he was first. Sounds like something from like a Marx Brothers movie. Um, but Or a certain politician, but I'll leave that alone. <laughs> yeah, we already took the podcast to a dark place a few weeks ago. We did, yeah. yeah. I, I did, to take full credit. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there are a lot of guys who can kind of do that right. sort of he, thing. He wasn't hitting 600. Right, right, yeah. So, you know, it's a question of, well, if, you know, if there's – this many guys who can hit like that okay that's nice but you know does that transition into the next step so if he if he comes even if he doesn't do what he did uh last year but if he has you know 250 300 major league plate appearances and hits near that you know i mean he did 119 uh way to runs created plus so, you know, for the uninitiated, essentially 20% better than the league average hitter. Uh, say he does 105-110 even over 200, 300 plate appearances. Then I really start to buy in to, okay, this is a guy who we might not question can he hold a spot, but a guy who maybe we need to make sure has a spot. Right. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to see that. I wouldn't bet a ton of money on it, but – you know, it's not impossible. Agreed. All right. Well, um, we uh, we we do want to touch on one last thing, uh, Chris. You were going to make a, a mention of of an event that you were supposed to be attending that is no longer happening. Oh right, yeah. So uh, 
spring training trip this year not happening for those of you who have been around uh dating back to let's see was it the first year this was like the rookie mistake jeff and i recorded uh you know when he he was still uh host he had me do a segment about that trip at like 11 30 p.m and and you know we mutually made that mistake uh the night i flew back so it was like get off the plane you know drive back to the bronx and want to go to sleep but instead stay up and talk about it on the podcast well if you enjoyed that uh i won't i won't have anything from st Lucie this year but uh we were looking at coming out of the arg uh something at city field and brian had the really good idea that rather than trying to do a group thing or buy a bunch of tickets and then make and somebody be on the hook for selling them uh standing room at city field is really great we're going to aim probably for a weeknight game in may so keep an eye out or an ear uh in this case <laughs> for specifics but you know get yourself into the park and come by either for the whole game a few innings you know whatever whatever works uh but we like the left field standing room area somewhere in, in between you know keith's grill and home plate uh, that's a that's a very vague way of looking <laughs> at it but yeah. you know somewhere in the 126 to 130 range of uh field level sections so uh, we had a good time at the ARG, met a you know, good amount of readers, listeners, um, and you know, fellow Amazing Avenue folks. So yeah. Yeah. So well essentially, you know, buy your seat wherever you want to buy it and however long you want to come hang out with us, drink a beer, watch some baseball, we'll, we're happy to do that. So we'll have more details soon. And uh yeah, uh, next week, a little tease here. Chris and I were talking about a uh, a potential uh, hot take that we need to see one more appearance to believe in, and uh, if if that happens, be ready for it here next week, folks. Welcome back to Forgotten Mets. I'm your host this week, Brian Renzi. With all the talk banding about Florida about a certain veteran third baseman. I uh, thought we'd look back at another veteran third baseman who also wore number five back in the day. This week we're going to look at Ed Charles. Now it might be unfair to call Ed Charles a forgotten Met. I mean, even though 69 Mets were before my time, um, I was definitely aware of Ed Charles uh, f- from a young age. I mean, I, in all images and video footage, uh, I recognize him as one of the first guys to the mound, along with Jerry Kuzman and, and Jerry Grody, um, but I didn't really know much about him, just kind of the the, the surface stuff. Um, I mean, uh, playing micro league baseball on my friend's monstrous Tandy computer back in the day, I just looked at Ed Charles as another pitiful batting average among many on the Met 69 roster, um, leaving me very few options when I wanted to pinch hit or who to play at third base. Uh, and, you know, looking at the World Series box scores, I was, even back then as a youngster, kind of perplexed as to why this guy was in the lineup for four to five World Series games. Um, and what I was missing about Ed Charles was the context and uh, the depth of his contribution, which is. Again, a, l- a little shocking in that even as a young person, I was aware Jackie Robinson had broke the color barrier in 1946. Uh, Charles likes to say, well, Jackie broke the color barrier. Charles and his contem- contemporaries were the ones who integrated it. And, uh, I mean, it's true. When Charles started playing in the low minors in 1952, there are exactly seven African-Americans who had ever played Major League Baseball. Uh, Charles ended up playing 10 years in the minors before getting a shot at the bigs, and most of those years were spent in the South uh, and just fishing around the Internet. Definitely came across a few stories of his that will make your skin crawl. Um, 
But he drew upon this experience as inspiration to write poetry, which he wrote and shared throughout his life. Um, so much so, he became known as, nicknamed, the Poet Laureate of Baseball. When he did make it to the majors, he made his debut the same day as the Mets, April 11th, 1962. Uh, he proved to be a really strong player for the Kansas City A's, um, only making it to the majors at age 29. Um, but he, he was, uh, since he got to the majors so late, Kansas City was willing to give up on him as soon as he looked like he might be on the downside. And they had Sal Bando coming up their system, who would later, of course, play against the Mets in the 73 series for the Oakland A's. Um, so the Mets were able to acquire um, Ed Charles in May of 1967. Uh, it was that year that rookie Jerry Kuzman nicknamed Charles the Glider for his seemingly effortless play out in the field and the way he kind of just glided around the base paths. He kind of only used as much energy as he had to to, to complete any given play and did things just so smoothly and easily. Um, and really... From accounts, it seems that Charles was huge in defining the Mets culture in that time, that um, there was some divides between like sort of older Mets who had been around for a while um, with newer Mets or younger Mets like Seaver. Um, and he was obviously uh, a leader for African-American players, with the arrival of Gil Hodges, he was turned into a bit of like a coach on the field. Um, and that year in 68, he led the team in homers. Um, and in the year of the pitcher, right, 1968, he had a particularly impressive offensive year standing out. He, it was, he had a OPS plus of 128. So, uh, Ed Charles in 68, at the age of 35, was getting it done. Um, the following year, 69, he struggled out of the box and for much of the season and ended up platooning with rookie Wayne Garrett. Uh, but he was, Ed Charles, that is, was right in the middle of things in the Mets' surprising 11-game winning streak that in late May and early June, during which... Kuzman famously said, never throw a slider to the glider. And Charles hit 295 with a 360 OBP in June, helping to pro propel the team to 19 wins, which to that point was the best month in team history. But, of course, there was still yet better to come. And evidently Charles sensed it because that summer he penned the following verse. East side, west side, word is going round. When late October comes, the Mets will wear the crown. Well, serving roles as both prognosticator and guarantor, Ed Charles hit the last homer of his major league career in the division-clinching win on September 24th off, off of Steve Carlton. He also nudged the Mets' trajectory in the right direction in the World Series. In Game 2 of the series, after the Mets had lost Game 1, uh... Both teams were tied 1-1 in the ninth when Charles got a base hit with two outs and nobody on. He went first to third on a Grody single and then scored the go-ahead run on an Al Weiss single. Then in the bottom of the ninth, when Baltimore had the tying and winning runs on base, Charles made a nice play on a shot down the third baseline to end the game. Uh, and his clutch play there clearly justified his spot in the lineup in the series as well as the famous image at the end of it. But that ended up being the end of Charles' career. Uh, 1969 was his swan song. Um, but he walked away with plenty of other things to do. Uh, he 
ended up working for a record label and starting a furniture company. Worked in the Mets minor league system for nine years before moving on to Commendable Calling with the New York City Department of Juvenile Justice, where he worked closely with troubled youth. So now, armed with all this information that I found out, next time I see Ed, who's now 83, at a Mets get-together, I'll definitely be a little wiser as to why he is so important. So this has been Forgotten Mets, and this has been your host, Brian Renzi, saying we'll catch you guys next time down hazy memory lane. Hey Mets fans, this is Steve Seiba, and baseball is back. Spring training started, the Mets have taken the field, it's a very, very good feeling. So this week I want to go over some of the minor leaguers that have been invited to camp. Um, not the more well-known guys, I mean everyone and their mother knows all about Dom Smith and Marcus Molina, you know, plenty of ink has been spilled on those guys. I want to talk this week about some of the more lesser-known uh, players. There's a bunch of them. Um, position players and pitchers. So I'll just go over everybody um, in alphabetical order. So first guy right now I'm going to look at is is uh, Patrick Biondi, who is a 26-year-old outfielder who was drafted in the ninth round of the 2013 draft. He spent all of 2016 in St. Lucie, and he hit for a decent average and got on base at a decent clip, but he really didn't show much power. And... Um, his main he's mainly known for his speed. He's a he's a great eighty plus um runner. And he's also a plus fielder, but I mean he's not a big guy and he's never gonna hit for power. Uh he has decent plate discipline, uh, but his swing has a lot of moving parts. So against tougher competition he's probably not gonna be able to maintain an acceptable average and on base percentage. So couple all that with his lack of power and he's really a uh defensive replacement kind of upside guy. Next um, is Chasen Bradford, or Chase Bradford if you prefer. He goes by both. He's a 27-year-old right-handed reliever who was drafted in the 35th round of the 2011 draft. And he's been the setup guy for the Las Vegas 51s over the last two seasons. He throws a low 90s fastball that has sink, some sink to it, and a, lo- a low to mid-80s slider, and has decent control of his pitches. Next we'll look at Jorge Carrillo who is a 27-year-old catcher drafted in the 14th round of the 2011 draft. He's more or less a defense-first catcher. He's a good receiver. He has about an average arm, and um, he's gotten good grades from all the pitchers that he's worked with over the years, some of whom are now in the major leagues. Next up is P.J. Conlon. He is a 23-year-old left-handed starter who was drafted in the 13th round of the 2015 draft. A lot of people know... Uh, about him because of his Irish roots, his, um, I forget, one fa- his father, I believe, is Irish and his mother is Scottish, and he was born in Ireland, Northern Ireland, but moved to California when he was like two, so I mean, he's really American, but that's neither here nor there. He, uh, throws a mid, uh, a really, uh, 86 to 90 mile power fastball. It tops out 91, 92 or so. His two seam fastball gets some good sink, and he generates a lot of ground balls as a result. Um, he has an above, he has an average to above average changeup, a fringy slider, and a fringy curveball. Uh, he has a kind of long, slingy delivery from a high three quarters arm slot, so he gets decent deception to his pitches, and he gets he's he's good. Uh, he's a control artist. He's a strike thrower, and he's a cerebral pitcher. He doesn't have the best stuff, but, you know, maybe he can make what he has work for him. There have been plenty of pitchers over the years that have had pretty fringy stuff all around that have had success at at different levels in the major leagues. So he's a guy I like. I'm rooting for him. He seems pretty likable, too. Uh, he got into baseball uh, through video games, so that's a plus in my book. And basically any stat nerd, really. Stat fraud, excuse me. Next up is Ricky Knapp, who is a 24-year-old right-handed starter. He was drafted in the 8th round of the 2013 draft. 
He pitched over three levels last year. He was uh, great in St. Lucie. He was good in Binghamton, and he was kind of forgettable in three starts with Las Vegas. But, you know, that's it happens to a lot of guys. Um, his fastball sits 88 to 92, and he commands it well, and he could pitch for the entire strike zone. Um, and his delivery is really not max effort, so uh, some tinkering with his delivery, maybe a little bit more growth, uh, a little bit more muscle. He might add uh, mile per hour or two to the fastball, make it more average than fringe average. And he throws a bunch of secondary pitches. He has a slider, a curveball, they're both fringe average, um, a changeup that's not great, uh, it's pretty fringy, but it has enough fade to it that uh, he could ch- uh, it, it changes its plane and fools hitters. And again, he has a cutter that's fringy, but it's enough to keep left-handed pitchers you know, aware that it exists. Next up is Kevin McGowan, who is a 25-year-old right-handed starter. Well, he was a starter, uh, drafted in the 13th round of the 2013 draft. He transitioned to the bullpen uh, pretty much full-time this year, and he looked good in St. Lucie and pretty solid in Binghamton. Uh, his main his main weapon is a mid nineties fastball that you know can touch ninety six ninety seven at times, and an above average changeup. Uh, he when he was drafted he really didn't have um, a breaking ball. He had a kind of very poor uh, slider, but he's refined it uh, into a workable pitch. Uh, he's a guy to keep an eye on. Next up is Kyle Renault, who is a twenty seven twenty seven year old left handed reliever who was signed out of the Can-Man League in 2014 after uh, meeting Phil Reagan at a golf course and you know just talking about baseball and his own uh, history, the game, got, a, got an audi- audition and was able to make the most of it. Uh, his fastball sits in the low 90s, and his main out pitch is a change-up, which sits about 80, and he mixes in a high 70 curve. Next up is David Roseboom, who is a 24-year-old left-handed reliever who was drafted in the 17th round of the 2014 draft. He's the he was the closer for Binghamton in the second half of the season last year, and that fits his uh, high-energy, intense kind of personality well. His fastball sits uh, 88 to 92. Uh, his his slider is his main secondary pitch. It's a sweeping slider. It sits 77 to 82. And he has a changeup that sits in the low to mid 80s. And it was pretty fringy at the lower levels, but he's refined it uh, fairly decently the last year or so. And he has a good feel to it. Um, he has a pretty extreme sidearm delivery, a la Pedro Feliciano and Madison Bumgarner, a guy like that. So, because of everything, his ultimate fate is probably a lefty uh, one out guy. But he, his, he doesn't really have platoon splits. And he gets righties out almost as good as lefties, you know, in the minor leagues anyway. Next, we will look at Paul Seawold, who is a 26-year-old right-handed reliever who was drafted in the 10th round of the 2010 draft. Uh, He's the closer for the Las Vegas 51s, where he saved 19 games last season. Uh, He's a guy that really had to work to get to where he is now. I mean, the poor guy only got a $1,000 signing bonus. That's not a mistake or a typo or me mispronouncing nothing. One comma zero 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 one thousand dollars. Um, so he he pitches with a chip on his shoulder and that kind of attitude. You know, it, it does help him as a closer. Uh, the stuff. The the reason why he got such a low signing bonus though is because the stuff really is kind of fringy. Uh, his fastball is uh, eighty eight to ninety, which for a right handed pitcher, especially a reliever, is not uh, anything special. Uh, but he has a, a decent slider. And he throws a changeup, and as uh, Jeff Pedernasher says all the time, all you need really is a uh, decent slider, and you can go places. So he's, I think, of everybody that is in the minor leagues that's um, in camp with the Mets right now. I think Seawold has the best chance to make a debut in uh, 2017. Next up is Champ Stewart who is a 24-year-old center fielder who was drafted in the sixth round of the 2013 draft. 
He split his 2016 between uh, St. Lucie and Binghamton. He had decent numbers in St. Lucie, but he had pretty poor numbers in Binghamton. Um, like Patrick Biondi, he's a good fielder, and he's a great 80-plus speed guy. And also, like Biondi, he's not really projected to hit very much, uh, which limits him a great deal. Um, his his issue is that he still has poor uh, pitch recognition. And, uh, you know, he's always had that. He was drafted out of the Bahamas, so he, he always kind of got a little break. You know, his, his baseball maturation is not the same as a guy that, you know, is from California or Texas. But, I mean, he's he's getting up there in age, and it's really unlikely that the recognition comes around at this point. But he's another guy I like, and it's hard not to root for him. Uh, next up is Corey Taylor, who is a 24-year-old right-handed reliever who was drafted in the seventh round of the 2015 draft. Uh, last season, he was with St. Lucie, and he saved 20 games with them. Uh, his fastball sits uh, 93 to 95 or so, and it's topped out as high as 97. His slider uh, s- sits in the mid to high 80s, as does his changeup, and he gets uh, good ground ball rates. He's a big guy. Um, he's 5'11", 250, and has pretty high effort delivery. So in terms of what we see is probably what we get. And he gets uh, another intangible plus from me because his nickname is Pimpsy. And really, you, you can't mess with a guy whose nickname is Pimpsy. Uh, the last guy now we're going to look at who's in camp is Logan. Is another Taylor, Logan Taylor who is a 25-year-old right-handed swingman who was drafted in the 11th round of the 2012 draft. Um, he's been, he was played in the bullpen uh, last season, and the stuff played up there better than it did in the rotation, but the results still were not really that optimal. Uh, his fastball sits in the low to mid-90s, and he complements that with um, a two-seamer that's about 88 to 90, Gets good sink, uh, low 90s cutter, and he uh, rounds it all out with a 12-6 curveball. It's, it's in the high 70s. So these are uh, most of these guys are unlikely to ever really make a major impact on uh, the Mets next season or really uh, any year going forward. At best, some of them might become kind of bit players, but you never know. Someone might surprise us. I mean, Robert Gazelman was a top prospect in the system, unlike all of these guys who are not. But, I mean, Gazelman put in the work, and he really fundamentally changed himself as a pitcher. So it's not it's not likely, but it's possible that one of these guys um, really shows up as a as a different player in 2017 than he did in 2016 and really gained some helium and might kind of make a open some eyes. So those are our uh, obscure minor leaguers in spring training camp. So take care everybody. This is Steve Sutton. that does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you so much for listening we really do appreciate it if you would be so kind we would really also appreciate if you rate review and subscribe to the show in itunes you can also find the show on stitcher or at blogtalkradio.com you can email the show podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com and we love it when you do that you can also find us all all the contributors from this site i mean from this show rather at our website amazingavenue.com where you can find all sorts of Mets news and information. Right now, we are uh, in the throes of spring training, so you'll see some spring training game threads and uh, lots of news up to the minute, uh, details about what the Mets are doing, so check it out. You can also find the site at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Amazing Avenue. And you can follow all of the contributors to this program on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Brian Renzi is at brenz78, and Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. 
So thank you again for listening. We'll be back in just a few days with our next episode. And until next time, let's go Mets, specifically Mets playing in the World Baseball Classic. Thank you.